the Q ratio, average convergence, divergence, basis points, and BS. Financial shows love to sound smart, but on Money Matters, we want to make you smart. That's why the goal is to keep you informed and empowered. Our focus? Providing clear, actionable advice without the financial jargon to help 1 million families retire sooner and happier. Based on the long-running WSB radio show, this Money Matters podcast is tailor-made for both modern retirees and those still in the planning stages. Join us in this exciting new chapter and let's journey toward a financially secure and joyful retirement together. We're looking at 2024. What are the major themes that matter for investors, for your 401k, for your early retirement planning or retirement planning over the next year? Ideas that we think here on Money Matters make a lot of sense to make sure that we're revisiting, understanding, and making sure that we are fully informed about because it is a whole new world in a lot of ways. The genie is out of the bottle in uh, and there's a lot of different genies that have popped out. Number one, inflation. Number two, interest rates higher. Number three, artificial intelligence. Generative artificial intelligence. New medical drugs, semiglutides, which are maybe not new, but now being used as weight loss drugs. And of course, impacting healthcare in the United States in a, in a major way. And we have what I believe is this unleashing of inflation that was dormant for so many years has been unleashed. That genie is out of the bottle and you cannot put any of those things back in. And it's a whole new world. And we'll see if people get that full reference maybe later in the show. With me in studio, Connor Miller. Can you hear me? You, you do need to turn on your button. Probably already did that. We are good. God, you sound great. <laughs> Perfect. I'd Happy love, New Year. Happy good to, New Year. Good to be on with you, Wes. This is the way I look at this. First of all, if, if you look at the Fed funds right now, remember the in, interest rates in the United States are not just the Fed funds rate, which is now hovering in the five, five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That yep. is the highest interest rate environment from the Fed that we have seen in 22 years. Now, it doesn't mean that down the yield curve, which measures two-year and three-year and five-year and 10-year bonds and 30-year bonds, we're hovering closer to the 4% range for the for the 10-year treasury. So, and that is what a lot of the world works off of. That's almost the, that is home base when it comes to interest rates, particularly for mortgages and where rates are on loans and getting, and getting, and lending for banks. But we're still at the highest point we've seen in over two decades with this almost five and a half percent. That is dramatically different from what we've seen a couple of, go back a couple of years. And really we had almost, we had more than a decade of low interest rates, low inflation. It's almost as if for, and the, the, fighting inflation is, is not a new theme. Connor Miller, of course, it is, it is really always something that we are, it's a, it's a huge priority why we invest, period. We, we, investing really wouldn't be as important as it is, whether we're owning real estate assets or we're owning commercial real estate assets or businesses or stocks, publicly traded equities. It wouldn't be nearly the important game that it is if these weren't things that protect us and protect our purchasing power over time. So it is... the perennially investors are, we're investing in our 401ks so that we can, when we retire, the value of our dollar isn't diminished because everything else gets more expensive in our dollars. If they're sitting flat, we've got a problem. Wilting dollars, inflation, 
the decrease in purchasing power. Those are all perennial issues for investors. It's all it's always on the table. However, so I think of it this way, almost as if inflation, if it were to have been a monster, a prehistoric monster, call if you're a Game of Thrones, maybe it's a dragon that has flown the earth. Maybe it's Godzilla <laughs> that has flown the earth. It's this monster we all know about. It's flying around and it's always there. We always have to protect ourselves. However, over a decade ago, that beast was frozen in a giant glacier somewhere in the Arctic. Really what I'm thinking about visually there is I think from Man of Steel, where the where the the ship that, that Superman comes down from Krypton, it gets frozen in some sort of glacial structure way up in Alaska, way up in the Arctic, and nobody knows about it, and it's and it's gone. A lot like what happened with this beast that is inflation. It just for some reason got stuck and it was almost non-existent. So people forgot about it. You weren't worried about it. I, I think back, go back five years, seven years, eight, 10 years. Uh, there's really not that much inflation. Do we really need to plan for 3% inflation when mm -hmm. inflation in 09 was actually a, a little negative? And then we had years where it was less than a percent, maybe 1.1. It just wasn't on the minds of investors like it had been prior to when the beast of inflation was was roaming the earth. Well, and really, it was to the point where the Fed was actually trying to increase inflation because it had gotten too low. Because you do want, there is there is some level of inflation in an economy that, that is a healthy, healthy number. That's yeah. right. And then, obviously, the, the pandemic hit and the government response to, pand to the pandemic was to wash the world in a tidal wave of fresh money. So essentially, if you were to look at what the Federal Reserve did and the Treasury, we flooded the system with extra money. So the, mon the money supply, the, the volume of money just went up. It went up by an enormous amount. Nine so, trillion dollars. <laughs> which is 40, 45%. So imagine we're living with 10 buckets of money that operate the economy. Almost overnight, we're operating with 15 buckets. So same economy, just 50% more money. Of course, that tidal wave of, of cash made its way through the system and, and it melted that glacier. And when it melted that glacier, it unleashed the mythical beast of inflation back to roam the world. And now here we are as investors saying, oh, wait a minute, we remember that? Remember remember the inflation monster? <laughs> oh yeah, son, do, do you remember? Before you were born, there was something <laughs> that, that we all invested to try to protect ourselves from and that's inflation and, it, and it's back. And it's roaming the earth and it's, again, it's not going back anytime Soon. So if you think about it, I have this chart I wrote in the outlook for 2024. Connor and I uh, and our team worked on this for a long, a long, long time. But I think that the very first thing that we show in this chart is a 15 year period of time from if we went to the Federal Reserve database for the St. Louis Fed and you can pull what inflation has been in the United States. If you go back to 2008, and you look until essentially the end of this past year, which we just wrapped up, we had eight, we, we had 12 years from 08 all the way until 2020, where over that entire 12 year period, we only accumulated 18% inflation. So a little, little, essentially a little more than 1% a year, 12 years for 18% total inflation. Then COVID hit tidal wave of, of cash. Monsters unleashed. We now in just the last three years, we've had over twenty percent inflation. So we've had more more inflation in three years than we had in quadruple, four times the amount of time 
prior. And that that is an eye opener, I think, and should be an eye opener to investors. I I remember back last year when people were waking up to, hey, wait a minute, it, money markets are supposed to pay something. Mm-hmm. It took people a while to 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 understand that cash shouldn't be sitting in the bank paying nothing because wait a minute, banks were starting to pay something. Money markets were they were paying two, then they were paying three, they were paying four, five percent. Wait a minute my cash can actually earn something. Now that's the upside of the Fed raising rates because their rate raise helped short-term debt and rates go up, which means money markets were able to go up too. So all of, but it took people a while to wake up to that. And I think that here we are in this new year, it's a whole new world and it is a whole new world of inflation again. So we're going back in history. It's, it is, it is target number one. So the theme Many of the things that we have six different things that we ideas and themes for 2024, I think are are extraordinarily important. They are all rooted in, or most of them are rooted in what we're trying to do in 2024, really and beyond, which is target number one, inflation. How do we beat that as investors? So the, the themes we're going to talk about today, number one, the economy. We think that we will see what looks like a Goldilocks economy in 2024. It doesn't mean it's going to be a great economy because we had a pretty great economy in 2023 and that was almost completely missed by really, Yeah, really against all odds. Against all odds. That's yeah. a great way to look at it. The, the recession odds coming into 2003, coming into last year, were anywhere between 70% and 100%, depending on the articles you read, the studies you read. Everyone said, we're, we're going into recession. We did, we did not go into recession. And now the question is, where are we in 2023? We don't think it's going to be a, 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 a gangbuster economy, but I, I think we can also still avoid a recession in 2024, even though there's more headwinds in 2024. And that's what we're calling a Goldilocks economy. It's not too, it's not too, not too hot, but it's also likely not too cold either in the coming year. Number two, the broadening out of equity markets. One of the big themes last year, was that a very small handful of companies called the Mag Seven or the Magnificent Seven, which were happened to also be the biggest companies in America and technology companies, that the market looked at as the beneficiaries of artificial intelligence. The the one of the one of the many genies that left the bottle that's not going back in. It is still yet to be determined if these companies will actually benefit from an earnings perspective from artificial intelligence. However, the market front ran that and said, we think these are the ones that will be the beneficiary. So we saw a huge, huge run up, 60, 70%, 100% in some cases of these big companies. And that drove the market. The, the, the vast majority of companies totally left on the bench until really the, the very beginning of November of last year, that, that the 493 that weren't in the mag seven were not even up mm-hmm. on the earth. They, they were flat, they were negative on the year. Then the last two months of 2023, we we started to see a broadening out. When the market started to recover at the end of last year, dividend companies, middle-sized companies, large companies, but still smaller than the mega, mega caps that were the Mag 7, started to really participate. So we see that as a real trend in 2024. More companies, more industries, not just a, a, a pinpoint of percentage actually participating in markets. Number three, because interest rates are higher, because we've kind of almost yet, dare I say, normalized where rates are, bonds are back. 
the bonds went through a really rough couple years. Now that interest rates are back where they are, we know in the bond world, one of the, the phrases, if you talk to a bond manager, they'll tell you yield is destiny. So if yield is destiny, our starting yield matters for our total returns on bonds in the future. So again, this all relates back to what, what should you be looking for inside the 401k? Broadening out of stocks, bonds starting to work at least a little bit again. Return to balance. And we want to talk about why a 60-40, which is really just a moniker for a balanced portfolio, really matters in this fight against inflation. And then two more on the list that we'll get to here today. The first question is the economy. Where, where are we headed in 2024? And we think it's going to be a Goldilocks economy. If you look at, what does that mean? It just means that it's not going to be a robust economic environment. We're not growing by three or 4%, which would be uh, an extraordinarily almost hot economy that the Fed would be worried about that would create maybe too much inflation. But it seems also difficult to go back into this recession talk, even though there are a lot of headwinds. So let's look at what, so what does that mean? We see growth in the one to two percent range loss in this coming year. That's at least what we see. Call that Goldilocks. Call that not too hot, not too cold. If if you think about where some of the headwinds we face, so we we still we were looking at through the pandemic that tidal wave of cash. A lot of that made into bank accounts. People had excess savings, excess savings more than normal. And for most of last year, we were waiting and watching for that to run out. Connor, that didn't fully run out like we've, we like it was quote supposed to run out. Yeah, and, and really depends on I guess which which person you're listening to, which model you're looking at. Some people had it running out early to mid last year, and then some people still have it that there's still savings built into the system. But I'd say from where we were a year or two ago, a lot of that has been been drained out of the system. So we've got savings is the cushion is less today than it was next year or th this coming year or f from last year relative to this year. We've got the cost of government debt, which th there's no secret there. Both political parties for the f really for the first time in a long time are talking about the government debt, $34 trillion and higher interest rates, which means that to service that debt, it's going to be more expensive. And when you have higher cost of debt, it's hard for the Fed to continue to do what they've done, which is pour more money onto the system. The Fed knows, of course, Congress knows, of course, we can't continue to expand that debt at the pace we've done over the last several years. That means a little bit of slowing in monetary policy. Again, a little bit of a headwind, not a tailwind, like when the Fed was throwing money onto the fire. And then there's there continues to be talk and evidence that commercial real estate in certain areas, and really this is in traditional commercial real estate buildings that companies own and then rent, is still is, is struggling because we have a whole new normal when it comes to working from home or not. So even though last year there were calls from big companies, get back into the office, get back into the office, it it's really that to me from, from looking around the world is still more of the exception and the vast majority of companies have adopted a much more hybrid workforce. Yes, companies want their employees to be back in the office. No question about that. But are they more flexible today where there's one work from home day or two work from home days? Some companies, it's three work from home days. So if that hybrid model continues, which I think it certainly will, I, I just don't see going back to where we were in 2019, you're going to have excess capacity. So companies are 
less likely now to renew a big lease, take out more space like they may have, maybe they would have, or downsize even a little bit. Commercial real estate is not going away. Companies still want buildings. We need a hub for people to go work together. But the growth of that is seriously challenged, and that's tough for commercial real estate. And these are big loans that owners have on buildings, and those loans are coming up for refinance on a rolling basis throughout the next year. So that is another concern. You're going to read about that in the paper. So you've got a lot. Those are all headwinds. Those are all pieces of the equation that are perhaps a little bit rougher than where we were last year. However, it's it, we believe it's really difficult to slow down what is a labor force that is still really tight and really strong and really healthy. If you look at the, the jobs report we just got on Friday, Connor Miller, th- the, the unemployment rate clocked in at 3.7%. That means 96.3% of people are employed, 3.7%. Which basically means that the economy is at full employment. That's that's as full as it can really get. And yes, we know that unemployment can go up pretty quickly when it starts to go up, but that means people have money in their pocket. It also means if, if we're also looking at employment numbers, we're looking at wage numbers. Last year, people did not get a real raise, meaning that wages were growing at about 5%, so that's good but inflation was growing at six. Net those two together and you end up still with a real negative wage, call it loss of for last year. That seems to have turned as well. So if you look at where wage growth is today, it's still a little over 4%. CPI is at 3.1. So now people are getting real raises. The vast majority of Americans are employed. So people have money coming in. They have money coming in. They can continue to spend that is more powerful, in our opinion, than all of these other headwinds. And it's really difficult to slow down that army of American productivity that is at work 24-7, 365 here in the United States. We see that bucking the recession trend in 2024. I was reading this weekend uh, Barron's article, Connor. And this is, let's see, what this what's what was this titled? This is... Parents are spending retirement savings to help boomerang children. Boomerang children, of course, people, kids that were go off to the world and they come back to the nest because it's an expensive world. And of course, you know, one of the reasons listed in your why do, why do children come back? Number one, inflation. Every economic question over the last couple of years comes back to inflation the high cost of XYZ, the higher cost of XYZ. So it's no surprise that you have more more and more kids boomeranging. This is from a Harris poll. Those children, these are adults. So adult children, ages 18 through 29. It's a decade swath of adults, humans in the United States. 50% of them live with their parents. 50%. It's funny. I was I was actually talking with my parents on. Uh, Are you on, moving back in? Oh, no, you're, you're past that. They they wouldn't. You're they wouldn't. Window no, they wouldn't let us back in. Now with my two kids, um, I was talking with them on Friday, and they said. So this would have been back in. By the way, I love your. I love getting in your car this morning. It was such a dad car. I opened up the back thinking I'd put my bag in there, and there's two car seats, and it looks exactly like my cars have looked over the years with Cheerios and cornflakes and Skittles all in the seat. It's really amazing how 
It's the only way to keep the kids from crying in the car. But uh, yeah, so I was talking to my parents on Friday and they were saying when they were renting an apartment back in the 80s, it was, I can't remember the exact number, three or $400 a month in rent. <laughs> talking to, you know, fast forward to today, talking with some coworkers, an in-town apartment for just a one bedroom is, is $2,000. So, I mean, yeah, I, I see why more and more people are, are coming back home. Our home price is going to come down significantly over the next couple of years. It's hard to see that because we still have an undersupply of housing, which is still a result of two, which is amazing to me. You got to go all the way back to 2007, eight, nine to see that home builders and home building companies get so scared that they stop building for a little while and then they're, they're very cautious. And they've been that way ever since the financial crisis because we overbuilt for a little while here in the United States. And that led to the great financial crisis. However, the one thing that could happen is that the mortgage rates come down, of course. So if mortgage rates go back to 6% or 5.5%, you're going to start to see some movement for first-time homebuyers. It's, it's really difficult. And, and we know that in 2023, last year, there, there were some times when the average 30-year fix was at, it was at 8%. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge adjustment from the 2.5% you hear people, I locked in my refinance at 2.5%. Those are golden handcuffs from a loan perspective. And of course, not only are we underbuilding, but you have so many Americans with low mortgages that are, that to some extent had the, had the fortunate timing to buy when rates were low, really hard for, are those people to give up those mortgages, move somewhere else? Probably, probably not. So yeah. You a lot unless of you absolutely have to. So we're locked in. People are 18 to 29 year olds are boomeranging back to their families. That's the highest rate of adult, children living at home with their parents since 19 since the 1940s it's pretty remarkable so with that we we're talking about what we think is a goldilocks economy people are getting real raises here so far and and the job numbers by the way on friday already are are boring this out at least a little bit it's only one job report we have 11 more to get well we have 12 more for this year the latest job report was for, for December of 2023. Unemployment rate down to 3.7%. We added 216,000 jobs. Payroll growth, again, a little bit of revising from prior months, but still fit pretty strong job growth, Connor Miller. And if you look at this rate, which I think is what is a remarkable looking chart, the unemployment rate trended down from the height of COVID and got below 4% in or right around the fall of 2022. And now we've been 4% and substantially under ever since then. And we're still there. We're at 3.7% under 4% that entire period of time. What's also interesting is where the jobs are being created. The number one hirer for 2023 was government. State and local government jobs were was was the number so federal hiring and state and local, I think they're bundling that together was the biggest net job adder for twenty twenty three. So it, interesting where jobs are, and we continue to see hospitality hiring and and that's still recovering at least a little bit from the COVID years, and then healthcare is still hiring tremendously. So you see, we keep economists keep waiting for a bad economy yet we still have a tight labor market. We referenced jolts a lot last year, job opening labor turnover survey. They were essentially looking at the number of job openings, vacancies, hey, we need your help, to people, hey, I'm looking for a job. There was a point last year that was two to one. 
two job openings for every one seeker. Talk about a tight labor market. It's, it's supposed to be one to one. And if you go back in economic history, it's it's been less than one yeah, for a lot of economic history. Yeah, going back probably the last 40 or 50 years, it's been about 0.8 to, to one for every person looking for a job. So, so maybe you have, you have eight openings, 10 people looking. Yeah, so that's- And then that went from 10 people, That went then that went to- 20 job openings for 10 people looking. That's right. Yeah. And right before the pandemic hit, we were at about 1.2. So so on a little bit on the tighter side, but nowhere near where we got last year, where it was two job openings for every one person looking for, for a job. So the labor market is, is strong. And this is the other thing that I think will continue. Investors are always battling this. Americans are always battling this because the headlines are almost invariably lean- not just lean negative or are typically really negative. And I pulled some forecasts from this time last year. Here's a headline from Bloomberg forecast for us recession within the year hits 100%. Here's another gloomy exhibit B from December of 2022. So a little over a year ago, us recession odds. This is another poll of economists at, at 70 plus percent. And then it didn't happen. We didn't get a recession. Didn't happen for a variety of reasons. One of them, excess savings, but two, the labor market stayed strong. So I think that that is such a such a pillar of the U.S. economy. And we call this the, the army of American productivity. I've talked about that a lot over the years, but the, the army of American productivity is, which I think is just very difficult to slow down. And it's that if you think about this labor force, that's 166, 167 million people Working or looking for a job, there's still people looking for jobs. Not everybody is employed, but there's a lot. There's so much inertia to that that it's really tough to slow that down. It's really tough to slow down the U.S. labor force, and that labor force is driving innovation every single day, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That drives our belief that over the long run, U.S. companies that we are all working for are going to be the beneficiary of that army of American productivity, which means they they have a workforce that is helping them expand what they're doing from an earnings perspective, a sales perspective, a revenue perspective, an efficiency perspective, a margin perspective, just continuing to be better and better with each passing day. It's almost, it's just this tank that just continues to inch forward. It's really, really tough to slow it down. And when it does slow down and we do go into recession and we do have a negative quarter or two of GDP growth, then the the motor continues to grind back up the hill and the army of product, uh, American productivity continues on. And that to me is just this philosophical belief that it's really tough to slow it down. And I, th- I see another year like that, despite economists still predicting that there's still a 50-50. Most economists that we read, and, and I, there's a lot of different economic research groups that we follow, I would, to me, they, they are relatively clueless about what's going to happen in 2024. Most forecasts I see are 50%. Coin flip. <laughs> I mean, these are we, we pay these people yeah. for, their, for their perspective. We, we buy research. In a lot of, in a lot of, and we buy a lot of different research to see what the smartest people supposedly in the world are saying. A lot of that is coin flip 50% chance of recession, 40% chance of a, a good economy, and a 10% chance of a really good economy. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that bold prediction. 
But it also just shows that there's so many different cross currents. Yes, all these the bad things that we talked about, commercial real estate, high government debt, excess savings running out. But then wait a minute, what about this giant labor force that continues to push push forward? And maybe this is also a little philosophical. I think about why do people work in the United States? And what is the, what's the fuel to that? What is the fuel to work in the United States? What's the what's powering the tank of the Army of American Productivity? And we work for, and I'm sure there's more reasons than this, but I'm thinking what, what drives people fundamentally to get up and go to work every day? Particularly when you see Gallup polls that say most people don't like their jobs, right? It's only like a third of people even like their job. So wait a minute, you've got two, two thirds of people that don't like their job you've got a pretty big percentage of people in the United States that hate their job. So how does this tank run? Well, for that group, they're working out of, there's really three things. It's fear. And then there is greed. And those are just two human emotions. that just never go away. And then there is, there's love slash purpose. Mm -hmm. And in any given day, any American has one of those th three things driving them. Their, their fear that I've got to put money on the table, a roof over my head, food on the table, money on the table, food on the table, money, or, or shelter, I, I, or I'm, or the, the opposite of that is somebody who's really saying, I'm going to make as much money as I can. And then there's, there are people, thankfully, that love what they do and they have the purpose to get up and go work and expand and push that army of American productivity forward. That's, those are all human, fundamental human emotions. And they net, there's an unlimited supply of that. So the, the fuel just doesn't go away. And that continues to power the tank. Whatever the fuel mix is, I'm not sure of. But it's at least those three parts running the engine, the, the army of American productivity. I think it drives us to a Goldilocks economy. Not too hot, but not too cold in 2024. More money matters straight ahead. Thinking about retirement in 2024? Well, you're not alone. And I've got just the thing to help guide you on your journey. What the happiest retirees know. My most recent book that shares the 10 habits of the happiest retirees. Meant to help you land at a place where work becomes optional. For a limited time, get 25% off at westmossbooks.com. Simply use the promo code OURTREAT, all one word, at checkout. That's wesmossbooks.com. Connor, we're talking in the break. There's this unlimited supply. H human, human emotions and human, what drives human behavior, that just doesn't change. And that's one of, the, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to investing is that we're always managing emotions. And the, the market tends to draw us in like moths to a light and then it will kick us just when you think you're getting smart. And... All of that is just driven by emotion. That's the human brain saying, oh, this looks good. Ah, or this looks terrible. Let me get out. It's just fear. I'm, I'm afraid of this. Oh, I think I can make money here. That's the that fear, greed cycle. Fear, greed, fear, greed. And, and that also goes to just your own personal economic family situation. I got the, we start out, I, would, I used to write about, this is a couple of books ago, but this is the, the fee, money. We're, we're driven to some extent by fear The the Pursuit of Happiness movie with Will Smith, I remember so many years ago. Most people have seen that movie where Chris Gardner's the the, the real life character he plays, and he ends up as a period of time homeless because his company went under. His company went under; they couldn't pay him. He ended up in the subway bathroom stall trying to spend the night. Really 
difficult images that remind you that the the economy is so fragile. So we're so Americans largely there's a giant part of the population they're just driven like I got to go to work, I got to do well, I've got to be able to put food on the table for my family. And that driver just doesn't ever go away. And that's why there's this fuel and then there's this fuel of the army of American productivity that is the opposite end of that. And that's people that are saying, oh, I'm going to make as much money as I can. They're driven by the the other side of the pendulum, which is greed. And then the third part of this, which is this, just the, the love or the purpose of what you're doing. And that's a pretty small percentage of the population. I don't know the exact number, but from what I can tell through Gallup studies and Gartner studies, it's one in it's a it's 25 to 35 percent of the population really does. They're really engaged in their work. They're good at it. They love it. And it doesn't feel like a whole lot of work. But that's call it. That's a pretty that's not a giant slice of the pie. So put all that together. Those are all human emotions that just continue on and on for really just our survival continues to drive this economy. And that's why it's hard to to really push the U.S. economy down for all that long before it rebounds. Now, number two on our list is this broadening out of equity markets. If you go back to 2003 and look at the just the general market, the S&P 500, versus the equal weighted S&P 500. Connor, maybe and, and we'll look at the, dis, the huge difference in 2023 between those two. The biggest difference between those two we've seen in over 20 years. What's the difference between those two baskets, if you will? So you're saying last year, what was the biggest difference? No, what's the equal weight? S&P 500 versus the regular S&P 500. So when you just think about the two the two stock indices, um, the the S&P 500, the the essentially the the proxy for the stock market is a cap weighted index. Size so size weighted index. So what that means is the bigger the company, the more weight they are represented in the index. So Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, the biggest companies in the world, well they have the biggest weighting in that index. What people have done in recent years, really going back 30 years now, is there's also an equal weighted index. So where Apple is the same weight as Kohl's is, right? They're not the same size, but for the sake of the index, they're the same weighting. And what we saw last year was the average stock, or really the median stock, by measured by the equal weighted S P 500 index, significantly underperformed the the names at the top. So I think it was the top ten stocks in the market accounted for seventy percent of the returns, but are only like thirty percent of the weighting. So there was this, and started the year at even less than that. Yeah, and they grew so much. That's right. So really, this huge divergence between just a handful of names at the top and what the actual average stock or the actual market did. And if I look at this chart that we put in our 2024 outlook, the, the equal weighted index lagged behind the, the, the regular S&P 500 by almost 15%, 15% last year. So, and if you if you're to dive in and look at what, what that really means, the average size company. So it, it's funny to think of a $20 billion company now as small, but that's a, even though that might be a large company or a $50 billion company, still large cap company, but it still compels in comparison to size to the few names that are at the very, very top that are in the trillions. There's there's several trillion dollar companies today, which would again be take a hundred billion and then multiply that by 10. You're talking about some huge size differences. So reversion of the value. The, the other thought here is that if you go back, think about market history, 
we could start to see a reversion to the mean when you have one group that clearly underperforms or sits on the bench, call that middle-sized companies, just good old-fashioned large companies as opposed to mega, mega large. When they get shunned, and this goes for any market period that, that happens for a longer period of time, when a particular group, and this can be small cap, it can be international, it could be different sectors. When a group gets shunned for a long, long period of time, at some point over the course of history, investors wake up and say, wait a minute, that's a better deal over there. Let's start moving. And then money starts to flow to where there's more, quote, value or it's cheaper. And when we, we're talking about valuations, that big seven that got all the fanfare because it, they are closest to monetizing supposedly artificial intelligence, trades at 33, 34 times earnings while the rest of the, the market trades something more like 17, 17 18. 18. Yeah, I, I think definitely last year you saw this, you saw a lot of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out where- Fear, oh, are you are you talking about one of my human emotions? Yeah. Fear. So you, I mean, you saw NVIDIA up 200%. Which by the way, fear, FOMO is really greed. Fear of missing out is really kind of greed. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's two emotions. And so it's it's essentially, you just want to get into these stocks and it you don't care what price you're paying because you just, you think it's going to go up. And I think on the opposite end of that, like you said, is when people start to wake up and realize, oh, wow, I just paid X amount for this stock. It's, it's not worth that. Let me go back and find some of these more attractively valued names. Of course, over the course of history, anything above 18 or so times earnings for public markets starts to be really, really expensive. So even though these, this group looks to be the beneficiary, when they get overpriced relative to what they're earning that can ultimately lead to problems over time. So we want to always be fundamentally looking for value versus paying anything for what we think might have an unlimited runway. Very, very, very few unlimited runways out there, which turns us to the top 10 best-selling cars of 2023. <laughs> Wait, what? Sorry, Connor. I just clicked on this. I thought it was fascinating. We're going to get back to that. The, this, I just couldn't, couldn't resist. I, I'm a sucker for these clickbait financial headlines on CNBC. Guess, let's see, number one on the list, or at least this is in the top 10. Ready for this? American maintained its love affair with the pickup truck in 2023, but a top-selling vehicle from Toyota Motor nearly ruined their tailgate party. Can you guess what it was? Uh, I have no idea. Sales of the Toyota RAV4. It's the RAV4. Mm. That's a compact crossover. Came within 10,000 units of Stellantis's, which is the company that makes the Ram truck last year. So it's the RAV4 is making huge headway. And yeah, I, I wouldn't have known that. So number one is the F, uh, Ford F-150, the Ford F-Series, three quarters of a million units. The internal combustion engine, right? Not the uh, not the lightning. Looks, it's not the lightning. <laughs> they don't make that many of them. Uh, the number two Chevy Silverado, almost five hundred fifty thousand. The Ram pickup. So we like pickup trucks in America. Top period. three trucks. That's it. Then the Rav Four. Then the Rav Four, which is really close to number three. So Rav Four is number four on the list, and number five, the Tesla Model Y. Six Honda CRV. Seven GMC Sierra which is pretty darn similar to the Silverado, right? The Silverado. So if you talk to the GM folks, they, they don't like the fact that 
Ford gets the top billing because they're splitting theirs. They basically are splitting two. theirs out between a couple of pretty much the same truck. <laughs> so they, they would contend they're the best selling. Camry, number eight. That's a happy retiree car. Number nine on the list. This is uh, the Nissan Rogue. Seven, 271,000 of those. Up 45% of the number 10 on the list, the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Hmm. So does that mean the only car here would be the Y, the Tesla, and the Toyota Camry? You know what? I mean, it's you, amazing. I was driving by, uh, we live up in the Alpharetta Cumming area, drove by the Tesla shop at Avalon. They have the, the new Cybertruck out there. Oh, wow. How many of them do they have? Just one, just okay, one, just in the store one front. truck. But I, I, I bet that's going to be going to be following the truck theme. That's probably going to be on the list here if they can make enough of them. That's in the, the next thing. Couple if they years. can make enough, yeah. yeah. I'm not so sure. I would take. I'd do a dollar bet with you that the rat, the the cyber truck will be not ever, not even come close to Ford and GM. Only because it's such a statement car. You've got to really want... It's such a different looking car. I mean, you don't even know what the front of the back is. It's just like, It looks like a, a, ro a roving pyramid. I don't know. It looks you like, kind of like a UFO almost. It does. It looks like a UFO. You're not going to show up on a job site with one of those? Yeah, that's true. I don't think... If you're a work... If you're, a, if you're in construction in, the, in America, you're a home builder or you work on a... In commercial building, who's going to show up in a Tesla truck, a cyber truck... I mean, eventually, maybe, but I just, I don't know. I get the Tesla. You've got one of those. And those are cool cars. In fact, my, we were up in Gwinnett for the for a, a Georgia Swarm game. Georgia Swarm Lacrosse. It's the, our major league indoor box lacrosse in Georgia. It's in Gwinnett. And we're a long drive home. One of my kids asked me, what, why, would I ever want to get a Tesla? And I said, I don't dislike, I said, no, why wouldn't you? They have computers. And so I was in a Tesla Uber before the holidays mm. and the Tesla screen, the guy was trading currencies on his Tesla screen <laughs> in the car. I was I, like, what? I'm like, what are the, it's a, you know, the red and green candlestick chart. I'm like, what are you, what are you trading there? <laughs> that's what I, that's what I'm doing on 400 every day on the way to work. Currency. Saving time. He's, he's yeah. trading Euro dollar, Aussie dollar. Uh, yen in the Tesla I don't on think... the screen. And he's like, well, I really have a lot of time because I'm sitting a lot and I can just do trades. And then I watch it while I'm driving and then I get to stop again and do trades. I don't think mine has that functionality. I may need to contact your Uber driver. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I think it, can you just plug in your laptop to your Tesla and whatever's on the screen comes up? Maybe. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that bet later, but I think the Cybertruck is too weird looking. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. All right. So number one uh, on this list for Outlook 2024, we know inflation's target number one. How do we how do we get around it? How do we beat it? One, it, it will be helpful to have a decent economy. We think we're going to have a Goldilocks type economy next year, not a super hot economy because there are more headwinds in 2024 than there were 2023. But also, it's still hard to see us diving into negative growth or recession since we have a labor market that we've been talking about this morning that is just still so strong, so tight, can it unravel? Sure, but you still have 1.4 job openings for every person looking, meaning that employers are needier than those looking for jobs. That's a tight labor market too, broadening out, broadening out of equity markets. This is just the, the, the thought around reversion to the mean. We've got 
once an area is overlooked or shunned for a period of time or too long of a time to, and it gets undervalued on a relative basis, meaning it's cheaper, that money typically flows to those areas eventually, eventually. And we could see, and, and the, the average stock still doesn't, isn't cheap, by the way, 17, 18 times earnings historically, but it's also not overly expensive. The, the mag seven, the, the big companies that really power the market in 2023, those are, they're trading in the 33, 34 times earnings range. Again, really rich, and a rich, lot, a lot of valuation, really a lot of pressure on those stocks to keep up. It reminds me of the, uh, what's the Spider-Man quote with great power comes great, great respons responsibility. That's right. It's like, well, they, those companies have a ton of power, also a lot of responsibility to, to continue to grow their earnings. Great expectations. Yeah. They're like number one draft picks. You're supposed to be the best. If you're not, you're so number, so that's broadening of equity markets. Three bonds are back. And we, we really saw part of this come into play last year. Bonds had a pretty okay, pretty decent year last year. They had a terrible 2022. Really, they had a tough 2023 in the beginning. They had a terrible 2022. They had a rough 2021. But as far as bonds are concerned, here we are in an environment where rates are much higher than they have been. It's a federal funds rate where the, that's the manual levers of the Federal Reserve. They get to choose where that rate is. They set it. And it being at five and a quarter to five and a half percent, it's a range. That's the highest it's been in 20, 22 years. So we have higher interest rates in general. Now the 10 year, Connor, is right around four. Yeah, just over 4%. That is, and it touched five at one point in 2022. So a 5% yield is... Even better if you're a bond investor back when rates were five. Now they've quickly, they're, they're, they've quickly hit some air pockets and rates moved well under four. Now they're back to four. But in the world of bond investing, yield is destiny. That's the quote that you can think of when it comes to well, what kind of return am I going to get in bonds? Well, a lot of that has to do with what they're paying, obviously. So yield is destiny, meaning that 86% of overall bond returns over the over the coming over a call it a three i don't know if this is a three-year number a three-year number yeah uh, five ten years i mean really is as far out as you can go when you think about what the goal of a bond is is to buy it it pay you a coupon and then you get your money back very different from a stock where a stock has infinite upside you want it to double triple quadruple with bonds you just want it to pay you the income and then get your money back. And so that income piece is such a big driver of, of your return. So, and again, why, why, meaning why 80, 86% of total bond returns are dictated by starting interest rates. Where are we today? And so that's number one. We've got higher rates than we've had. So we get to lock those in if we were to be owning or buying, owning bonds in our, in our retirement accounts or buying them at this point. Number two is stability. Remember, that's, that was the other big reason we want bonds is income investors, they have long been a very useful part of the portfolio or portfolio construction, not just for their income, but their stabilizing role in investment portfolios. So that if you think of the landscape marred by constant economic uncertainties, bonds are a relative safe harbor, particularly when compared to other asset classes like stocks. More money matters straight ahead. We're looking at one of these stories around sports drinks, and it's 
kind of amazing. I love this this article, various flavors of the energy drink, drink prime for sales in a shop window in March in London. That's why it was flavors in the United Kingdom. This is this is a drink that has been taking market share from re, real market share from something like Gatorade, which is this is a Connor and I are scouring. Well, wait, wait, wait. Who owns Prime? Is it Coke? Is it Pepsi? Is it is it Dr Pepper? Uh, Keurig. It's just a startup. From a, from a YouTube star, Logan Paul, who is famous for just being famous and then became a, a bo- an amateur boxer and just has a giant audience with youth and said, I think I'm going to make a sports drink. And then he promoted it on his social media. And now it's a, it's a massive, massive part of the, of the sports the, drink the, economy. The it's fastest amazing. growing beverage in history. It's amazing. And I contend, I can tell you that in my house, I've been see, I saw it all last year. We've had we've had cases of prime. Think about the the summer lacrosse tournaments. It's ninety five degrees. You're on the turf. It's like a hundred and five, and we're always carrying giant coolers of Gatorade. But one one of the things that totally replaced that in some in some of these events was a brand new drink. Like what is this thing? Prime, and it's the the one of the primary bottle colors is red, white, and blue. So to me, it almost looks like a candy. It looks like a really sweet drink, and I've, and it's. I think it just tastes really good, and that's why kids like it. So again, army. You said it. Army of American productivity at work. I mean, started two years ago, and you're over a billion dollars in sales. That's if that's not evidence, I don't know what is. That is incredible, isn't it? That is incredible. The so we're we're talking. We were talking about bonds are back. Yes, one interest rates are higher, meaning that we're we're able to lock in better rates today. That goes a long way with our total returns for what fixed income can be. Number two, of course, stability in uncertain times. If you're an income investor, and a quick reminder, income investor is someone who's looking for companies that aren't just growing in price. They're looking for companies that are paying out cash flow in the form of dividends, particularly dividends that are growing ever so slightly year after year over time so that the dividends themselves keep up or outpace inflation. We know that just looking at the S&P 500 over the last 40, 50, 60 years, dividends have grown about twice the rate of inflation. Inflation at three, dividends have grown at about six. So we, we want dividends from stocks. We want interest from bonds. We want distributions from other areas like energy pipeline companies or companies that are in the real estate space space that are paying out the rent they receive as cash flow or distributions to shareholders. So there's a variety of other ways to, to generate income. And if you think about having a collective of all those different areas that are paying you out some level of current income, then that goes a long way, particularly when you get into retirement and you, you now want your money to not run out. Hey, I want to. I want to live by the call it four percent rule or four percent plus rule. If you're getting three percent just from the income, it goes a long way of being able to sustain a portfolio over time. If you're younger, it's let's arguably slightly less important to generate income because you don't need it today. But if you are still an income investor, you can still reinvest, 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 which also boosts your overall returns because you're taking those dividends and they're just buying you more shares. So that's, that's the philosophy. It's not the only way to invest. It's not the perfect way to invest. There's no such thing. 
it's just philosophically how we've done this for so many years. And it's what we're comfortable with, particularly as you get closer and closer to retirement income, multi-asset class. So I want to get income from a lot of different areas of the world, all in one portfolio, pay me lots of different cash flows. Those tributaries of cash flow, if you will, all flow together to be one stream of income when it gets to retirement. So we have the outlook for fixed income usually, usually gets better when rates go up. Number two, there's stability in fixed income or bonds. Long been a part of the portfolio that's been a stabilizing factor. And we're we one thing that we're in any given year, you can almost predict that we've something crazy out of left field that happens in any given year. It happens every year. There's some, whether it's wars, whether it is natural disasters, geopolitical events. We have an election coming up, which by the way, is on our list to talk about. It's a re-election year in 2024. Re-election, which is slightly different than an open election, but election nonetheless, that has an impact on markets, which we'll get to. But then if you think about fixed income bonds, which you, you, you describe very succinctly, which is you, you, you buy a bond, it's an IOU, you get paid a certain interest rate at the end of the term, three, five, seven, 10 years, you get your money back. There is also counter cyclicality when it comes to bonds relative to stocks. So that not every year, and this is why bonds got a bad rap in 2022, they didn't necessarily go up when stocks went down. And that's the but over the course of, course of history a longer period of time we've certainly seen that counter cyclicality so if you've got a part of the portfolio that's going down that's on the stock side your fixed income is at least giving you some cushion which leads us to the fourth theme of 2024 as we are on this quest to defeat inflation over time and that's remembering the whole objective of the 60 40 balance portfolio so ever since Harry Markowitz, who was who won the Nobel Prize in economics, I think it was economics. He, he developed his logic behind this balanced type of portfolio, and the sixty percent is in stocks, the forty percent is cash and bonds. So there's actually three different asset classes here: cash, stocks, bonds. And Wall Street has had this relationship where there's a lot of years they've loved that concept, then they've hated the concept. Now they maybe they love it again. But the headlines around the balanced portfolio ignore the concept's fundamental purpose to begin with, which is asset class diversification. Using a combination of different areas of the world to reduce the overall volatility of the the pie itself, smooth out an investor's glide path to reach their long-term goals. And yes, of course, outpace inflation, but reach your retirement goals with that. The other thought is that you hear the quote 60-40. It's really just a proxy for some sort of diversified portfolio. And the way I think about it is that, and we do this, we manage portfolios on the whole spectrum. Some can be much more concentrated in in equities on one end of the spectrum. The other, if it's super conservative, can be highly concentrated in fixed income. But the, the concept is that you are somewhere along that spectrum of balance and it may be half in equities and half in bonds and cash. It may be 70% in equities, the other 30% in bonds and cash, but some diversification along that balance spectrum. That is the key here for investors to remember. If stocks are, if bonds are quote back and we get broadening out of equity markets, then the balanced portfolio 
should, we'll say, we don't, we have no idea what exactly happens in the future, should participate and really help protect you with less indigestion along the way. Looking at what's happening to the world in 2024, the th really the theme is that we've got the, the enemy and the enemy is the inflation beast that roams the world. It was in a glacier for over a decade. The tidal wave of monetary, of buckets of money that came from the Fed washed away that tidal wave, unleashed the inflation beast. It is now roaming the world again. And we've got to make sure that we're doing something to protect ourselves against it. So inflation target number one, we saw a ramp up. We went from, we went 12 years from 08 to 2020, right before the pandemic, and only had 18% total cumulative inflation over 12 years. Then in just three years, 2020 through last year, we ended up with over 20% inflation, huge acceleration. And the, to some extent, we are in a whole new world. The genie's out of the bottle in a lot of different ways. One, we've, we've again, now we have inflation, it's back. It's not going in the bottle anytime soon. Number two, we have higher interest rates, probably not going in the bottle, back in the bottle anytime soon. Artificial intelligence, last year was the advent of generative artificial intelligence, the question will be, that is never going back in the bottle. And that's just part of our world now. Companies are using it. Companies are leveraging it. The question will be, what will it do to productivity over the, over the coming decade? There was a Goldman Sachs report that came out a couple of weeks ago that, that is forecasting that it'll add about a half a percent to GDP. Remember, we've got a twenty. Three trillion dollar economy. What's the what, what is total GDP at this point? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Every one percent is two hundred and thirty billion dollars in economic growth or, or activity. GDP is the, the combination of consumer spending, government spending, business and investment spending, and then exports. And we've been looking to see is productivity going to continue to rise as we go th through these tech technological cycles, and is this the next? productivity booster. We'll see because it's not just chat. It's not just bad writing from chat GPT. <laughs> it, it is really the, is artificial intelligence being able to solve problems, do uh, medicine quicker, do create new drugs in a much uh, short order. I think of the, the example of, of uh, the radiologists will probably throw rocks at me on this, but I think of artificial intelligence being able to read read x-rays and MRIs and getting smarter and smarter and smarter as they learn to do that. Now, I don't think it takes, I don't think it takes jobs, but it makes medicine or, or those who are trying to doctors, let's say they're trying to, to decipher what some sort of imaging says with the use of AI, maybe they get five times faster at it and three times more accurate, which is just a net positive to the population it, it it boosts healthcare. Let's call it we we don't know yet. Maybe it's a we're all one percent better because our diagnostics are five times faster. We don't know exactly what that's going to mean for productivity because it may translate to. And I think about healthcare. Does artificial intelligence make healthcare better? Does it make doctors be able to talk to each other in a in a more efficient way so that it helps the outcome of patients? If that's the case, then maybe AI has an impact on longevity. Maybe it makes it, maybe it makes medicine incrementally better, maybe a lot better 
over the course of the next decade. And maybe that expands, maybe, maybe that gives us a little bit more longevity and, and, and that's wonderful. And that I can't think of anything better than that. I pray for longevity every day, but imagine if the average person has to stop working. It's let's call it, they have to stop it on average 68 years old, but now it, it's on average 70 because we're that much healthier. That's a massive, massive boost to productivity in, in the U S. Yeah, and I, I was gonna say, you know, on the on the healthcare front, it it seems like at least what we have so far, and I know this is evolving by the day, but Chat GPT as a, a large language model, it's really the more data you have going into it. So if you have all your personal health data going into it, yeah, I mean you would you can easily connect the dots to where it'll be able to anticipate and and cure, I mean, much better than the current system we have today. Um, which, yeah, like you said, ultimately leads to longevity and more productivity. More productive, more a healthier army of, of American productivity. Now, we go back to this balance here. We've talked about how we could see stocks broaden out. We could see bonds. Well, we, we're seeing bonds in a better environment because, quite simply, rates are higher. And and that's for the, the overall market. Remember, bonds are also a massive market. It's it's. Ironically, much bigger even than the stock market. The amount of debt in the United States. Well, we all know about the government debt right there. That's thirty-four. Tr- that's thirty-four <laughs> trillion right there. That's just government debt. So it's this massive market of, and and not all bonds are created equal. We have municipal bonds that are state and local municipalities issuing debt to build things, repair things. Then, of course, government debt, treasuries, which we all hear about in the news every day, and then corporate bonds, of course. So, not all of they're all different in in a respect of what is the claim, what is the ability for the issuer of the debt to pay back. So it's not so high yield debt is the companies with lower credit. We've got some companies that have really good credit, and there's there's that variable as well. So, inter- so bond investing is not, of course, just about interest rates. And I think I want to make that point, but. But a lot of it does come back to where our starting rates and they're higher than they've been. Consider, and as we were talking about combining these these very different areas, the the equity side or the stock side of the market, and then fixed income or bonds and cash. And then, of course, within equities, Connor Miller, of course, there's lots of different categories within the equity side of the market or that slice of the pie. But consider the the following illustration, and we went back to, we went back twenty five years. I know you did a lot with this illustration. We went back to, or was did we go back twenty years? Twenty, yeah, twenty years for this one. We went twenty years, and we looked at a, at a simple million dollar portfolio that started twenty years ago. Go call it back in two thousand and three, and looked at it in a couple different ways. We looked at it reinvesting in whatever the current one-year treasury rate is. Again, today, that'd be closer to the 5% Five. range yeah. today. So in any given year, you're reinvesting your money in the one-year treasury over time. You start with a million bucks. You withdraw and follow the 4% rule. That's 4% of the initial balance plus inflation every year. So you start, let's say you start with 40,000 year one. And the next year or that year, we have 10% inflation. You bump up your withdrawal every year now further to 44,000 because it's 10% higher. So you have the stair step or kind of high watermark every year. But if you look at what that means is over a 20 year period, 
a withdrawal. It's going to be the same for both. Two, we're going to look at it two ways. One, the one-year treasury. And two, in a traditional 60-40 stock portfolio. The withdrawals are about the same. It's 40%, whatever inflation is, over 20 years. It You end up withdrawing about $1.2 million, just shy of that. It's $1.19 million. So more than actually what you started with. You're taking out more than what you started with. Over a 20-year period. Mm-hmm. The question is, what are you left with if the underlying investments that you're using are the one-year treasury versus the balanced stock bond? The the one-year treasury we are left with, at the end of that 20-year period, your your initial million dollars, yes, you've taken out one point about 1.2, so you've taken out more than you even started with, but you're only left with 225000 So you're, you're get imagine that's your retirement, you retire at 65, now you're 85. Imagine you have now drawn down most of your capital. You've drawn down almost over 75% of your capital. And now your nest egg, your cushion is really depleted. Now you've kept up with inflation from a, from a withdrawal standpoint, but the, the engine to create more income is significantly diminished. And, and, and that's really because we went through a decade period where one-year treasury rates were around zero. We're basically yielding nothing. So every year you're having to reinvest at lower and lower rates and you just can't keep up with what you're withdrawing. Now only use 40% of that to some extent, right? Now we're using the, the aggregate bond index for the balance here. If we go to the the same example, start with a million, use the 4% rule, take 40,000 out year one and then up that for inflation every year for 20 years, start with a million dollars in a balance. So we have two thirds or about two thirds or 60% in a, a equity portfolio, 40% in bonds. Again, that haven't been great over the, over the, let's call it at least the past decade. You, you withdraw the same 1.2 million. You're left with though, over 1.4. You end up, you are at least protected by having your nest egg diminish. So you, again, same thing. You're so let's say you're 65 you're at 85, you've been able to use the 4% rule, you've kept up with inflation, and your nest egg now today is still bigger than it was 20 years ago to continue that work. I think that's that's the key here. So two very different situations. One from an investment standpoint. So one's very balanced, one is not. It's it's meant to just be protective. I want to always be in the the one-year treasury. And unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't go very well over a longer period of time. If I think about, so hedging against this inflation, which would be number, call it five on our list for the year, hedging against, against inflation in general be- becomes the, the investors need to be re-reminded of that. So you've got 20% cumulative inflation over just the past three years. The good news is, Connor Miller, is that if you are an investment-focused family, whether it's your just your 401k or your 403b, or an, or outside brokerage account, and you're investing, let's call it Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, somewhere. Investors have largely, not everybody in every situation, but largely stayed ahead of that inflation tidal wave over the last three years from at least the stock categories you're looking at. And if I go back and I look at what stocks have done on a total return basis over the past three years, where we've had that 20% rise in, purchasing power or call it a 20% decline in the value of your dollar, your dollars have wilted about 20%, then you've still been able to keep up with that 
even in some of the categories that haven't been great. I look at even in real estate, or if you look at Vanguard, if you look at just a real estate proxy, total return is around, call it almost 17%. The S&P 500 has been a little over 30%. Pipeline companies have been almost 45% or so. And then even value stocks, again, that didn't do all that, didn't keep up last year, but still did okay. If you look at value over that three-year period, still up 28%, about the same as growth. So you're you're seeing all those very different equity categories. These are all different kinds of stocks, different sectors, different ways of slicing the market, largely kept up with or outpaced inflation. It's done the job we've needed it to do. Now there's some volatility there. There's some indigestion there. So there's higher risk, higher, it's a little harder to be invested in these areas, but they, but they've worked at least over the last three years when we've had big inflation. Connor Miller, we need to speak about the re-election. Saving the best for last, right? The re-election. What is, we're in a re-election year. It's, it's political season. We're not going to go into politics what at all. But we are going to talk about how markets have done in different political cycles. And here we are in an election year slash re-election year. I, 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 that does seem to matter for a number of reasons. And what, what does the market typically do? Yeah, it really does. And an emphasis on, on re-election because election years, at least in the context of the stock market, kind of get a bad rap, right? They're... You don't get a lot of gains. There's more volatility. And so overall, when people think about elections, it's it's generally not great for stocks. Um, but as you, as you emphasize re-election years, they're a lot different. And so on average, the difference between a re-election year, so you have an incumbent president running again, is 13% difference for the S&P 500 historically going back to 1960. When it's 13% on average, a better year if the current pilot of the plane is running to continue to be the pilot of the plane. That's right. And so really, it, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, whether they win or not, but just in a, if they are running for re-election, generally that leads to, to better returns for the market. If it's an open election year, the market historically has been about flat on average. Okay. So, but a re-election year. All right. And then what about the, how many, how, what's the positivity rate? How often is a re-election year positive or not? Yeah. So this is the big one. And this is where you, you know, depending on how your position may not want to fight history is, is going back to 1944. So every re-election year since 1990, we went back to the forties earlier today, uh, noting that we have the highest percentage of adult children living in their parents' home since 1940. So we've been referencing the 40s today a bunch. Yeah. So 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 all the way back to World War II, we haven't. There hasn't been a negative re-election year for stocks going all the way back to 1944. We've had years where its returns have been muted, but haven't had a negative year uh, going all the way back that far. And th and th obviously there are a lot of them, right? It's, it, it's more common to have a re-election than a, in a complete open election. One, two, three, four, five. 13 yeah, of them. 13 of them. So yeah. all 13 of those presidential quote re-election years have seen positive returns from the market. Wow. Going all the way back to 1970. And to, Cynically, and it's really not even cynically. If you are the one running and you are currently in office when you still have lots of levers to pull, arguably still lots of power to 
to influence the market, at least on the, the market, the economy, on, mm -hmm. at least on the margin, then is it really the lever pulling that we, we see to make this trend yeah, so, so positive for incumbents? I, I like to think just like all of us out there, we want to keep our jobs. Presidents want to do the same thing. And so they're going to do, they're going to use all the tools at their disposal um, to, you know, try and prime the economy up. And um, because we know that that's generally what determines favorability with a, with a candidate is how well the economy is doing. Here are a couple of headlines of what we, these are just examples of how Washington is trying to influence the economy to the, let's call it to goose the economy a little bit. Record U.S. oil production is pushing prices down. That's an Axios headline. Federal infrastructure, clean energy spending, powering the economy and lifting GDP. That's from the Inflation Reduction Act, right, Connor? That's the Inflation Reduction Act plus, yep. plus infrastructure. Plus the infrastructure bill. China and U.S. should strive for peaceful coexistence with Xi, says Bloomberg. And here's why 2024 could be, this is, this is a clear-cut one. Here's why 2024 could be the year of student loan borrowers finally get forgiveness. It, it, again, if you're going to forgive a billion, two billion, five billion, thirty billion dollars worth of student loan debt, that's just a, that's a huge boost to the economy because that group of people that would otherwise be paying 100, 200, 500 dollars a month can be now to pay down debt can now spend it in the economy. Of course, that's to the economic positive clearly. So you put all of these together. And you have Washington, and every, of course, everyone does this. This isn't just who's currently in office today, but it makes sense that these re-election years have at least a little bit of political tailwind to the economy because the, the, the folks that are in charge are also running and they want their report card to be as good as it possibly can be. And that's part of, part of the reason likely we've seen this historical trend. So put all this together, I think the, the bottom line here is that Connor Miller and I are big believers. If you're an investor, you have to believe that the world continues to be a better and better, more productive place economically over time. Not every single step, every single minute or year, but over time. And that's that army of American productivity. So I, there, are, there, there are real opportunities in 2024. It ushers in the new world. Yes, this whole new world. It's inflation, it's interest rates, it's new technologies and medicine and generative artificial intelligence, you put it all together, that, those are just new pieces to the equation for the army of American productivity. And you put that in dynamic companies with durable business models, you put all that together along with a better fixed income environment that we've seen in a long time, put all that together and you should be able to find an elixir or a weapon or an arrow from the quiver that we all seek to combat inflation for the long haul. Inflation target number one. Tyler Miller, thank you for being here in the studio. Thank you. And have a wonderful rest of your day.
This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.